0: Hi there, and welcome to our Dairy Exporter podcast series on FodderBeat. I'm Anne Lee, and in this podcast series, I'll be talking with Dr. Jim Gibbs from Lincoln University. Jim's a lecturer at the university and is also the university's veterinarian. He's originally from Australia and came to New Zealand to take up his post at Lincoln in 2004. Jim will be familiar to a lot of you for his work on fodder beet over the years. He's worked with farmers along the length and breadth of the country and has carried out some pretty intensive research both inside and outside the lab. He's spent plenty of time talking with farmers and working with them on their systems and seeing what actually happens out on farm. Those farmers have included dairy farmers and beef farmers, both finishers and breeders, and winter graziers, some of them operating at very large scale. I sat down with Jim recently, as a result we've built a podcast series that'll cover a range of topics on all things beat. So take a listen, we hope you enjoy. In this podcast we're talking about all things transition, whether that be to the wintering block or to the milking platform, if you're using the crop there. Recently I sat down with Jim and we talked about a number of issues related to transitioning. This episode is part one of two on the subject. Let's talk about some of those rules and uh, for transitioning when you are going into the winter and some of the good examples of how people practically do it so in terms of how they manage that um so how they set it up and how they ensure that they've got the numbers right
1: okay so there's again there's a little bit of a background story around that because once we established that the dry matter intake of beet and beet alone was the driver and i say that because sometimes you hear that there was a requirement for supplement at the time, etc. That Actually, no, that's, that's not the case. There is a very important requirement for supplement, and we'll get to that in a moment. But it's actually the dry matter of beet that causes problems. If you, if you don't allow them to eat any more than that, you won't have problems. What will often happen with the supplement is that you induce problems by putting pressure on the cows. They're hungry, they jump fences. But in the end, the problem will always be, for whatever reason, the cattle then ate more than they should on those days. So once we'd established that that dry matter allocation was really important, it was then a very practical affair for a couple of years because one of the things with beet that's different and was very different to the brassicas that farmers had fed was the yield. So if a dairy cow, which as we've said earlier, is trained to eat, they eat and they eat hard right from the beginning. If a dairy cow is given three kilograms of dry matter on day one, she'll often die. She'll be overtly acidotic and she'll often die. Now, it's relatively common to grow 30 tonne crops of beet. 30,000 kilos of dry matter in a ten in a hectare is 10,000 square metres is three kilograms of dry matter every square metre. So in other words, it will, even in the early years, people grew some beet crops. Mm-hmm. And when, when people uh, began to understand more that, that allocation was the primary animal health impediment. The next step was, how do you practically manage that? Because with brassicas, what had happened was the, the paddock would have been planted to the four corners, the four points of the compass, as we'd often say. The farmers would make the most of their paddock. Then they'd put up a hot wire, run the cattle in, maybe run them on and off a couple of times. But particularly with kale, the idea was there was a transition. There isn't really a transition to kale. They don't have ruminacidosis problems like that. So even if they'd done it quite fast, five, six days or something, there wasn't an issue. And they could trample down or beat down or make themselves space and there was no problem. When they did that with beet, there was a big problem. Mm. And one of the issues was cattle intakes aren't... They take about seven days to get up to the point, even if they've seen bee year for year by the way, they take about seven days to get up to the point where they'll have maximum intake. That's why in the early days, the deaths were between seven and ten days. Even if you ran them in there and gave them many times more than what they needed, they'd leave it all behind them, they'd trample it under them, but they'd go back and eat it. And when their intakes got high at about seven days, they'd go back and eat well over what they could. So their head was ready to eat, but the rest of their body, the room in particular, was not. The first thing that we had to do was to work out a way that we could allocate smaller amounts behind a wire. And it was actually quite, like a lot of these things, it was actually quite straightforward. just took a while to get there. We we first of all insisted that people put a headland in. If they didn't have a headland, they couldn't have the space for cattle. The second component of that headland was um, uh, people don't want to take a lot of that crop out or they don't want to leave that crop out so sometimes the headlands were very small 3 metres for example, 2 metres well if you run in that number of cattle in such a small headland inevitably that line will come down they'll push up to an end, they'll go over heifers will get heaved over the line so there were practical issues about keeping that line up the the next and arguably even more important component was we realised that there was a very important difference between uh, access and allocation so the allocation was a critical component particularly of transition but we realized that you could do their allocation in a number of configurations so the best example the one we commonly use is if i want to give every animal a square meter and i could do if i have 100 cows i could do that in a 10 meter by 10 meter block but they're never going to hit on that and everyone no. intuitively knows it so the other option is i could have 100 meters wide by one meter deep And what we quickly discovered was that there was a a rule of thumb that if you shrank the line, so if you put more cattle in than the linear meters of the line had, if you put them in at more more than one to a meter, then the lighter and shyer animals got pushed back from it. And then on a herd allocation, it meant nothing. So for example, if I'm allocating one kilo of dry matter the first day, but only 50% of them can get at it, then they're eating two kilos and that that concept was not um, one that we ever worried too much about with brassicas because it didn't matter they flattened themselves out but it mattered a lot with beet so apart from the headland we also worked out and to this day it remains we've done a lot of research over this many years now and and it's interesting it was a very robust measure as long as people allow allow one linear meter per animal it doesn't matter actually whether it's a uh, rising one-year-old replacement heifer or for that matter a Um, bull beef systems with dairy bulls as long as they've got one meter they'll have enough space and for the headlands as long as they've got at least six meters behind them then they've got enough to move around and the lighter and shyer animals aren't pushed off the line so those two things were the were the principles about paddock design right so paddock design long
0: long paddock long face does it matter what's in that headland no. It can, can be bare ground?
1: Yeah. Right. In the early days, uh, we would um, insist that farmers plant it out with grass because what they would say is, well, we'll plant it out with beet and when we get around to it, we'll pull it out. And I noticed that didn't happen. Um, it was a problem. And right. so, what we do in the early days, we'd insist that they plant out that headland with grass and let it grow. They could grow up to their waist if they wanted, it didn't matter. The animals would monster that grass within a day or two, but at least it gave them the space for that headland. These days, it's much more common for people to plant the paddock out and then clear it with a tractor bucket or a beat bucket, and put that aside. And then after transition, they feed it back to them anyway. Right. And one um, one issue that was a practical issue on New Zealand farms: many of the paddocks were configured with a water source at one end, and often that was the only water source in that paddock. And so people would commonly, in a rectangular paddock, use the short face because it was closer to the water. And that was always a problem for us, so in, within a few years that we realised that that really didn't take advantage of the long face and you had less animals that you could fit in and it was a problem. So we began using portable water sources right from the beginning to get around that. A yeah. um, bee has a lot of water in it and by the time they're at full intakes of that, they're, they're occasionally, depending on the cultivar, they're eating 80-100 litres of water a day. Yeah. So the actual amount that they drink in winter when they're on full intakes is tiny. Yeah. Um, it doesn't In transition, when they are usually got lots of supplement or something else going, they'll drink more and um, access to that is more important at that point. But where it is in the break it doesn't make, make very much difference at all. It doesn't change on-farm practice. <laughs>
0: Okay, so we've got feeding one kilo and not moving them off that until you can see all of the animals are actually eating it. Because as you say, the behaviour issue too is the cows actually will take some time to adjust and get to like what Mm. they're eating. Just because it's high sugar doesn't mean it's yum. They do take some time to get into it. So farmers should be observing those cows. It's critical to actually stand there, come back after you've put them on, and like, how long should you be watching them for? Yep,
1: that's a that's a critical, uh, a critically important point. There there is a myth that um, cows really like fodder beet, and like a lot of these things, it's partly true. Once their uh, head is switched onto it, they do really like it, and they'll eat it, and they'll eat lots of it, but. Um, in, in cases like Brendan Woods we've been feeding it without pause for 13 years and so there's not one cow in that herd that hasn't seen it before yet every year you go to pull them back on again there's a significant proportion and we're talking 30% or more that will take to be quite slowly mm. and to complicate that even more nearly all cows at first exposure and subsequent exposure will readily eat the leaf And at best, that leaf will be in autumn 30% of the total plant dry matter. Commonly, it'll be 20 to 25% when they start in winter. So eating that leaf doesn't help anybody. It's the bulb that's the, the part of the diet that cows have to get onto. And that's one of the reasons why transitioning by time is a bad protocol. So you hear this occasionally that you can... Uh, plant the paddock out and you can put them on and for example a, a common way that this is put is that you can run them on for 20 minutes the first day and 40 minutes the second day and etc and then you're building them up like this. Um, people who are in the use of this will tell you that commonly that's a problem and the reason it is because cattle when they're first exposed even wintering where you've got some control over them will take a few days to get back to eating big bulb and if you like, switching their head on to the fact that they have to eat it, that this is going to be their diet. So if you run them into the paddock and you leave them, a lot of them, particularly because they're good at times, will work out if they just wait, they're going to be out of there very soon. Right. And they do. And they'll have a nibble of the leaf and then they'll wait and out they come. Now if people aren't paying attention to the number that are eating the bowl and readily eating the bowl, two things that happen. A proportion of the herd will eat the bowl readily. Now they're getting all of that that the other proportion that don't eat it at all aren't eating. So your allocation drops out the window. The other important component is that, for reasons we understand very poorly, if you have a that proportion of the herd that really doesn't eat beet, persisting for a few weeks, they'll often not eat it for the rest of the winter. They'll eat enough to get by, and then they'll make use of the leaf and the supplement and everything else they can do and they'll often report really poor body condition gains on them. Now that's also the case in lactation feeding where you see it most markedly but you do occasionally see it in really badly managed wintering herds. Wherever I hear people say that there's a good proportion of the mob that really didn't like beet, particularly mixed stage cows that are wintering, you can be pretty certain straight away that there's a management issue. It just doesn't work like that. And the management issue will often be around overfeeding the supplements before they go onto it and then not giving them enough time in the early days to be pushed onto it. And in wintering, you do actually have to push them onto it. So, for example, if they're fed, and going back to one of the issues with transition, if they're only to be fed one kilogram of dry matter in the early part and they're to be held on that until they're all eating it, they have to have a lot of their diet. Supplied by something else. Now, the cheapest way to do that is to have co-grazing pasture, but otherwise it's going to have to be grass silage or straw or hay or a combination of the above. Now, if they're particularly if they're feeding the conserved feeds and they're eating a lot of it, if they're doing that before they go on to the beet, then there's no incentive for a number of those animals to get onto and eating the beet. So one of the problems in the early days was that the use of supplements was drawn into attention and it is important there's no question around that very important it manages the cows but if they're given lots of that supplement before they go on there's no incentive for them to eat now it takes about a week before their head really switches on to eating it and eating it hard so that first week that you've got is the most critical week when you're introducing them in a wintering herd and in that week you should use the supplements very carefully so people will tell you, no, you don't want to put them on to beat when they're hungry. Actually, that's not true. There's no problem with putting them on if they're hungry, as long as your allocations are really good. And what we would also do with, with the headland scenario, so we'd have a linear metre per cow and a good headland behind them, and we would put them on for one kilo, but we would make sure that we leave them in that paddock for three hours or so, regardless. Right. Now, they might well eat that kilo or a lot of them in no time at all. But what you're doing is you're training the cow that it's not gonna come straight back out that gate in a very short period of time and go back to eat whatever supplement it wants. Yeah. So again, back in the early days, one of the issues that we would have is that animals um, didn't eat any beet at all in the early week or so because they'd wait near the gate, they'd go back and eat the supplement. At some point, that supplement disappears. It might be two weeks down the line, but it disappears. It's down to a low level. That cow then has to eat beet. There's beet everywhere by that stage. So they would very rapidly take their intakes up and then they'd fall over. So the, um, supplement management is a critical component of transition, but timing also is. So best practice is to say there's a small amount of supplement that's put out, they're put onto the beet when they're, they're allocated very carefully, and they're put onto beet when they're hungry and they're left there for a sufficient period of time that they know that they're not going to get out quickly. Right. And that's the way to encourage uh, good uptake in the herd. Unless there's a management issue, it's extremely rare to have more than 1% of the herd that's not eating after a few days. Right. So normally it should be pushed on quite quickly.
0: Right. So they'll get the rest of that supplement once they're yep. finished.
1: And then they come out after that and they can eat that supplement. And and that supplement is very important because if you're giving one kilo of a food that passes through the rumen very quickly then if you're not feeding them adequately around that, and for us that's about eight kilos of something else, mm-hmm. and something that typically has a fairly high fiber content, so either silage or hay or straw works, but it can be grass, and grass mm. is cheaper to use in the early days. If you're not giving them that, then they'll be hungry. And if they're hungry, they'll push a defense. Yeah, So again, it's a fine line you're treating. <laughs> it is, it is. And people would say, um, oh, I had lots of trouble, you know, my electricity wasn't high enough, I needed this and that, actually. Um, In well-managed herds, the electricity plays very little role. Uh, For some of the um, supervised herds that we would work with, if that line comes down once, it would get a phone call. If it comes down twice, it would get a visit because there's Mm -hmm. something wrong. Mm -hmm. Something has gone wrong with the supplement management and the rest of the management around that mob. They don't pull the lines down unless you've made them hungry. So your, your structure around timing and supplement feeding is
0: really important. So we've learnt a lot there, you need to have a good headland at least 6 metres behind the animals so they don't get jostled through the wire. You need a linear metre for each animal along the face of the crop because access is just as important as getting the allocation right. You can leave them on the crop for around 3 hours while you're training them so that they're not going to wait and go back to eating their supplement. You want them to start eating the crop. And you don't want to fill them up with supplement before they go on to the crop because they won't necessarily eat it then. You want them to be a little bit hungry so that they start getting into it. They're not necessarily all going to take to it at the beginning. So you have to persevere. So that's the end of part one on transitioning. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, go to our website nzfarmlife.co.nz and subscribe to our excellent monthly magazines.